the easily the creepiest thing that happened in this election was the Jamie Harrison campaign against Lindsey Graham. I don't know who was running Jamie Harrison's like email operation, but they seem to have thought that the best way of raising money was to get them to write emails that were um, basically copied from some kind of stalker template. My wife was getting emails from them and started deleting them because she thought it was spam. <laughs> like, no, this is how this campaign is raising money is they are imagining themselves to be the weird guy in college stalking his college crush and writing emails. They had headlines like, I'm sorry to do this. And, um, Look behind um, you. Uh, I know it's 1 a.m., but you need to read this. <laughs> Like, literally, it was crazy shit. And, and written in weird fonts. Like, it was really weird. It was literally, you know, fundraising and stalking. So were these were these kind of stalker emails, were they more kind of give me some money or you'll regret it? Or was it like, if you send me a hundred I really, really need $47.33 from you in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> Jesus. I just had a, an article out today about the Jamie Harrison campaign, and it is called, What if the Democrats are losing on purpose? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> goes into a fairly, um, you know, a, a hypothetical that is actually less, um, it's, it's less important than the possibility that we would consider such a thing, whether they are doing it on purpose or not, like that. Obviously, the real problem is that they're behaving in such a way that makes us wonder whether or not they're losing on purpose. But the Jamie Harrison campaign was the example that we used for just the utter insanity of the approach. The fundraising, I mean, you would get so many messages in a day and they had the, I, I compared it to if you've ever had a friend with um, like a serious drug problem or, um, you know, who owed someone money that you don't want to owe money to. Somebody has gotten themselves into trouble and is calling you at 3 a.m. begging for a favor. Um, and, and it was constant. It was it was relentless. I, I think the worst part is, is that it worked. He shattered all the records for uh, single quarter fundraising, like something like 57 million in one quarter. I don't even know what you fucking do with that money. It, it was utterly insane. And it was to lose. What you the, don't do is build killed. a large scale ground operation <laughs> with devoted followers who know what the fuck your party stands for. Oh, you, you pay off all the people you owe money to in kind of mid, <laughs> like 13. Yeah, you, you find all your friends and get them to sign contracts to provide you political consulting services before the yeah, deadline for which right. you have to return that money. You know, that's what yeah. you do.
Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli, and we are here to talk about the US elections. So uh, we're all but certain the winner of the presidential vote will be John Biden, as uh, Jair Bolsonaro insists on calling him. And I, for one, am <laughs> delighted uh, because it takes the wind out of the sails of the aforementioned Brazilian president. Um, but that's not what we're here to focus on. Uh, so for this episode, it is the three of us as usual, myself, Alex Ohili in Sao Paulo, Brazil, George Hoar in London. Hi, George. And Phil Califf in Canterbury, England. Hello, Phil. Hey. And uh, joining us to discuss the election are two bona fide U.S. Americans, one straight out of flyover country and the other a member of the coastal elite. Uh, So that's the whole U.S. covered right here with our guests. Uh, (laughs) Respectively, they are Amber Frost and Alex Gurevich. Hi, Amber. And hi, Alex. How are we feeling? Are we relieved that the circus has left town? Um, I... I would say, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm just so pleased that it's over. I've I've took sort of a vow of quietism for the past few weeks because um, I just sort of accepted that uh, my influence over such things had come to an end, which was kind of freeing. Um, but now that like we're closer to actually having um, a president announced, I, I will have to return to my my, my slavish devotion to politics. Um, because I'm a sucker for a lost cause. So I sort of enjoyed my vacation from it. And I'm a bit, I'm a bit sad that my, um, like I, I, I only just a few days ago had my newspaper redirected to my new apartment. Um, so it, eventually like the world is going to be a part of, uh, yeah, like the political world is going to be a part of my life again. Um, so, yeah, yeah, my little, yeah, my little time off. It, it was nice. I obviously couldn't escape it entirely because uh, it's my job. Um, but I didn't follow the minutia, uh, and it was it was quite nice. But it is nice to know that um, I really think that the sort of Trump hysteria will will be assuaged a bit. Yeah, I mean, it has to be. It has to be, or or we're going to have to take them out back and shoot them. Yeah, it, I think that's, they're I think suffering. That's right. we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. We're coming suffering. to solutions at the end of this, and we'll leave that <laughs> one uh, in our back pocket in case we need it. Alex, uh, what about you? And and who did you vote for to put you on the spot? Yeah, who did you did guys you vote, vote for? You vote in Kanye, right? I, so, so in the end, I voted for Bernie Sanders because um, wait I a minute, I, wait a minute, Alex. Bernie wasn't on the list. Exactly. So I, at first, I was not going to because um, I felt like he just completely betrayed the reasons that a number of us had liked him, which is that he was trying to stand for something vital, independent, universal. And then he just folded up tent immediately and did nothing to actually try to change the Democratic Party, continue to stand independent from Biden, um, uh, and and through his own supporters under the bus by calling them irresponsible for even considering doing anything but voting for Biden. But then when I thought about that, well, then who am I going to write in? Uh, I couldn't think of anybody. I thought of friends or family or something have, like that. You could have written. But then I thought, what better expression to, to actually embarrass Bernie uh, than uh, vote for the idea of the guy rather than the actuality? And so I, I said, fine, I'll write him in. Uh, in, in the grand and the grand American but tradition, there was nothing. In the in the end, there was nothing really to it. It didn't matter, you know. 
There you could have nothing, drawn a big uh, penis on the ballot instead. I of love, I yeah. love about how the Grand American style. tradition doesn't even, not even Alex escapes it. But we are more likely at this point to vote out of spite than any other reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a protest vote. It's yeah, yeah. It's the only politics we have left is just spite. Uh, I mean, I would say that I, I that's that's the one area where I sort of part with Alex is that I, it's basically impossible for me to feel betrayed by Bernie, um, mainly because he's doing exactly what he said he would do from the get go. And I don't agree with that. But my thing yeah. is, is that he, it was honest. Um, and yeah. also, I just I just can't, you know, he did more than any anyone has done in my political lifetime. And God, looking at the um, uh, the traitorous dogs who have since left his, uh, you know, his campaign to do all kinds of horrible things. It's like, Jesus, he never, ever, ever had a real campaign. It, it, it just made you. Yeah. It just made you more was- aware of how of how how few people actually believed in that project. Um, yeah. and, and how many people like, you know, in his campaign administration were truly just like, I mean, I don't, I, not, not just that they didn't think he could win, but they, but that they were like, this is a, this is going to be a great note on my resume. And then I can get a real candidate. Right. Well, we can't, we right. can't do too much uh, Bernie funeral stuff here. Um, yeah, Bernie yeah, has yeah. left the stage unless he comes back. I, I didn't vote secretary. to answer your question. Okay. Yeah. Well, there we go. Yeah. Um, I, I voted for Bernie in the primary, um, even after he had left his, uh, cause he was still on the ballot. Um, but again, it's sort of symbolic votes. All you're doing is, uh, you know, you're making a grand poetic gesture. And my main thing was that I don't give anyone shit for voting for this person or that person or not voting or anything because Never has it been more clear that it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a gesture and, you know, you do it for yourself, like going to church or whatever. Yeah, you, well, can, you I... can write in the idea of Bernie Sanders with a capital I and that's, so, that's, I, I, yeah. that's your commitment. I don't actually know that, that I think this time what voting meant has changed. I think it's actually the most interesting thing about this election. Uh, it's, it's one of the few things we know for certain still is that there's actually been a massive increase in voting this time around it's a trend so, i looked so, it up so it just, just, inter- just interrupt you alex history. uh let's let's actually get started with that um because okay. um in rounding up what the main takeaways are from both the presidential race and the house and senate races uh i think the main thing that we should pull out right before we discuss any of this particularities is precisely turnout right i mean what is 161 million uh, is the expected turnout which is the highest uh, as a proportion of those who can vote since 1900, which is really remarkable. Um, and just for comparison, I pulled the figures, it was 136, 136 million in 2016. And then uh, around that level in the previous two elections, 129 and 131, this one was 161 million. So that's quite remarkable. So Alex, why don't you tell us what you think uh, drove that, I guess? So um, I think what's important about it is not just the quantitative increase, which is, a, as you say, a dramatic increase in the share of the electric that has voted um, and that this is the largest share in 100 years, 120 years, but also that it was equally distributed, roughly, so that it wasn't just a function of the Democrats coming out and voting en masse, but that there was a massive increase on both sides of the ticket. 
And so I think it suggests that it's not just a kind of quantitative increase, but that there's a qualitative change, that it's, uh, it's um, a, a sign that a lot of people see democracy as actually a way, and voting in particular, as a way of registering a real conflict. Uh, and it's, so it's a real intensification of the stakes of voting and of politics. And, you know, we might think that the particular polls as they're currently articulated are kind of weird and misdirected and convoluted and somehow overly cultural. But I do think that it's not just a quantity, you know, this quantitative increase is also a qualitative change. It's, um, it's, a, it's a sign that both sides saw it as a chance to really get behind whatever it is they thought that their side represented and that the purpose of democracy is to register a real conflict over um, over the kind of central issues of the day. Um, uh, and so the, it's not just the size of it, it's the fact that it's a considerable increase on both sides. Uh, and uh, that this means that sort of certain kinds of social conflicts are getting politicized and becoming significant to people and the vote matters in a different way. Then I think it has in the kind of more um, more over the past like 30, 40 years, uh, the kind of post-Cold War kind of semi-apathetic low turnout kind of politics. Um, so we've got a name uh, for that. Yeah, <laughs> the end of the end, the end of history. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a good. Um, I mean, I think, and I mean, could we? I think it's safe to say also as a baseline, it's something to be celebrated. I think without being Absolutely. too um, congratulatory about it or self-congratulatory about it, if you're American, I guess. But the fact that people are keen, eager to participate in um, shaping their political system, that seems to me to be positive, broadly speaking. I, I think the other thing to say about it, too, is it's going to put enormous pressure on political institutions that have kind of grown, that have kind of a re-establish themselves over uh, around the activity of not particularly effectively representing people on um, presupposing that there actually wasn't that much democratic pressure on the state, that there wasn't that much democratic pressure on the parties, that there wasn't a demand that the different branches be able to engage in coordinated <clears throat> political activity. So it's to be celebrated. And I think it's also going to mean that there's going to be enormous pressure, a degree of pressure on especially the most kind of undemocratic and power fragmenting aspects of American politics. So it's good for that because it's going to put pressure on some of the worst aspects of the formal institutions, like everything from the Supreme Court to the Senate um, to the presidency, but also the less formal institutions like the parties themselves. They're going to have to find ways of giving expression to these particular, the, the, the increased demand to find real democratic representation in and through parties and political life. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm let's, not let's, let's, entirely yeah, Amber, sure about that one. Well, if you want to respond to that, go ahead. And then we should maybe talk about the sure. Senate and if there's anything that you guys want to pull out that you think is particularly relevant. Sure. Um, you know, I do think that there is something about um, the increased turnout that indicates that um, that yes, participation does does um, hold sway in in people's minds now, rather than checking out or crossing their fingers. Um, I think it is sort of broadly good. 
I do think one can't underestimate the, um, for the love of God, please just shut the fuck up vote, which is not the kind of um, participation <laughs> that we would, that we would exactly be hoping for. Um, yeah. And I don't, and the bigger problem is that I'm not sure that it's particularly repeatable. I also think that in terms of accountability, I've sort of come to the conclusion after doing a kind of, you know, zoom out from the race itself and more on party operations that the Democratic Party in particular, um, not even so much the, the Republican Party, really the Dems, is, I mean, we say that it's not a party and like that's clear in the sense that it doesn't have members, it doesn't have, you know, a membership base. It's, um, it's a sort of advocacy, it's a party in name only. Uh, it's, I think at this point, kind of a, it exists to justify its own existence. And it is mm. what I called recently in um, an article that went up on Jacobin today, a, a wealth transfer scheme for the PMC. Um, nice, the, nice. The party has lost its base twice in uh, the 20th century. One, it lost sort of a, a working class base as um, as labor declined and um, they were substituted by this, um, you know, the embourgeoisement or whatever, this ascendant new professional middle class, and they became the vehicle of the party. But then, you know, the fear of falling was right. They did fall. So um, their base became smaller and more dwindling. Nonetheless, those sort of, that older generation of PMC that was unable to reproduce their class still need to give jobs to their children who you know, have whatever, seven uh, unpaid internships under their belt and, uh, you know, masters from Wesleyan and, uh, you know, uh, undergrad at Oberlin or whatever. Um, and uh, one of the decent ways to do that is to keep this kind of mechanism going. And I think that because, I don't think the Democratic Party needs to win elections to keep going. And I don't think that's really its purpose anymore. I mean, this, this sounds borderline conspiratorial, but um, we know that at least to some degree, um, it does function just to justify its own existence. It's, it's like a tautological organization. It's very strange. It's just on this closed loop. So I, I'm not sure how much the um, the voting increase is repeatable, and I'm not sure what sort of pressure we can put on Democrats as a party. And I don't have any solutions, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Alec, do you want to respond to that really quickly before we talk about uh, the Senate and the House? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I know what Ember's talking about. I just think that um, this is the way it is with sclerotic parties that are kind of decaying and that have built themselves up not around continuing to kind of actively represent their own members, but to kind of just represent the state back to, you know, discipline limits, there's not much that can be done, you know, the boundaries and constraints of politics, that is certainly the Democratic Party's become. But it's, for that very reason, it's quite weak, right? I mean, it, it just barely managed to keep Bernie out. And um, I think that's a that's a weakness, and I think it's going to it's it's clearly already going to face quite dramatic internal challenges from the 
what's now whatever you call it, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And I think it will it will make that segment, they're, they're going to be forced to respond to the energy and charge that is being brought by the more active and youthful side of the party. So it's weak and vulnerable for that reason. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, this gonna, is... We're going to come on to discuss yeah. these. Anyway, so that's all I say yeah. is I agree that there's a sense in which it looks like a party that doesn't want power, so it doesn't want responsibility. It just wants to continue to kind of raking in its dues. But it's going to... The, the point to me about the turnout is that it's, it's popular forcing itself on the party. And they're yeah. going to be forced to represent interests and incorporate them in an active way or be broken apart. There's also, um, obviously, in this election, there's the, the Biden effect, you know, the, the massive kind of enthusiasm and popular mobilization behind one of the best candidates that we've that we've ever seen. And that's Anywhere obviously not going to be repeated in, in the yeah, in, in the future. So that's that's kind of one of those, you know, one off um, back to one yeah. political events. It's just worth <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the legislature, uh, excitingly, uh, the the blue wave didn't emerge. There was no full sweep of uh, of the two houses. Uh, there's a, a lot that we don't know yet. So I, I mean, we'll just maybe mention it very briefly. Um, maybe pull out the fact that obviously uh, the idea that the Democrats could take the Senate now has obviously been been I think fairly soundly quashed um, based on the results we have. So I far. don't think that's true. No. Well, then, no, nope. there's going to the be a runoff. Alex, they're just coming through. It looks like they're on the brink of taking the Senate, in fact. All right. Yeah, I mean, there's three seats. Uh, it's, it's, not, it, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the Democrats will flip the North Carolina seat, as it turns out. There's two seats that we're going to be facing runoff in Georgia. So um, we don't actually know. I think it's really unclear. And actually, I think a lot of people um, overreacted to the first two days. It's basically, I don't think the polls even turn out to be that wrong. Once all of the votes are actually counted, um, it's just going to be a really slow process because there's so many of them still out there. But it's not at all clear that the Democrats um, won't end up with control of the Senate. And what about the House? Uh, I would, I would say, though, I, yeah, I would say, though, that one of the reasons that it is difficult to predict this sort of thing is that because during um, a presidential election year, all other, all politics stopped. Um, and somehow like the election season also has gotten longer and longer. I'm pretty sure we've been on this election season for a hundred years now. Um, yeah. I think I'm in purgatory and I'm already dead. Um, I, I will believe that we have yeah. a new president elected when you know he's actually up there being sworn in. Um, made it, yeah. We made an edit, but I, it really was as it. the House and the Senate. It, it became like an extreme, yeah, because I had to, and it's still impossible. I mean, it's still it crawls and it, and it, into it your into like your bedroom forever, at night. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like I was less confident about any any House or Senate, you know, um, sort of ambitions that we could have possibly ha had. Just because everything was about Trump, everything yeah. was about Trump, and yeah. it's it's debilitating. It's been absolutely debilitating. Yeah, so I think anything, that's true. I mean, before yeah, we before we get on to that, because I think that there, we will probably discuss that head on in a little bit. But just to kind of finish off the round out, uh, any 
thing you want to mention specifically for the House or Senate races? Otherwise, we can move on. I mean, I think the, the thing we can say about the House and Senate races is that the Democrats did not do as well uh, um, down ballot as they did with respect to the presidency. And one of the interesting things is that we've there has been a bit of a return to split ticket voting. So the very thing that people said that Trump had destroyed, because now the Republican Party now just sinks or swims, according to Trump, is actually what reappeared, is that there were there were considerable numbers or numbers of people who have, were ready to vote not for Trump, but for the Republican Party down ballot, which is why we might end up with divided government. Uh, we might end up with a Senate controlled by Republicans. The House will definitely be Democrat and Biden looks like he'll take the presidency. So um, I think we can maybe we can talk about this later. I think it's going to be extremely different if the Republicans control the Senate um, and will be worse. Um, because of the way it will frag, it will allow both sides to play the political game they prefer to, which is the competition for the center in a way that allows everyone to avoid responsibility for what's actually happening. And it's absolutely, I'm absolutely certain that the Biden, that what Biden wants is the Republicans in control of the Senate, because the Biden wing of the party doesn't want total democratic control, because then all of the responsibility lies with the democratic party. And it will be entirely an internal debate within the party about what it ought to be doing. Whereas what the Democratic Party has been in a way most comfortable being is pretending to be the kind of party of bipartisan agreement and compromise, um, which is the language it uses to to say what it really means, which is discipline, limit, low expectations. There's only so much that can be done. And the left is irrational for thinking anything greater than just, you know, voters seem to want that as well. I mean, at, at least according to some of the exit polls, which we'll come on to in just a second, uh, seem to indicate that those who want uh, a, a unifying candidate um, and who most distinguish uh, themselves yeah. by wanting that versus a, a Trump, who obviously is a divisive figure, voted for Biden. So, I mean, I, it seems that it's not just the party establishment who uh, want, see that, but uh, something that comes, a desire that comes from the voters themselves, from Democrats. Yeah. I mean, actually, last time you asked me what was Biden campaigning on. And the one thing I think I should have mentioned more was he's campaigning as this classic um, candidate for unity. It's not just normalcy, but that he's going to do unity. And of course, the Democrats do this a lot and never understand why it backfires on them. Because the Repu- what the Republicans get is the person who promised unity is the one who then gets held responsible for there not being any. So the Republicans can continuously undermine and play the actual political game of conflict and refusing to cooperate and compromise. I mean, remember the Republicans said, um, the minute that Obama was elected, say we will refuse to go along with it. Mitch McConnell says, I will not go along with anything Obama said. And he said that outright, this is what we're gonna do. And it was always somehow Obama who was then supposed to be the the figure failing to bring the country together or whatever. Because of course you can't, politics is about conflict. And and if what you're promising is unity, then anytime there's conflict, it's your fault. Right. Right. Uh, it, you're the one who's failing to do what you said you were going to do. Uh, everyone else said what they were going to do. And now everyone's looking to you to solve the problem. And so it's a kind of carte blanche, actually, for the Republicans. Um, yeah. If you, if, you, if you win the battle for the soul of the nation, then you have to do something with yeah. that. That's yeah. all. You have to heal it. Yeah. So absolutely. That's a responsibility. So, yeah. so the Senate races are, I think, a really big deal. 
actually for this reason, is it really changes the sense in which we know who's actually responsible for what's going to happen for the next two years. That's a good point. But let's uh, let's put a pin in that for now, as uh, we don't know, um, and move on to some of the exit polls. Uh, some of the things that I wanted to pull out, maybe firstly, gender. Um, they There was an expectation, according to polling, that the gender gap would be larger than it had ever been, up to 15%. Uh, I think previous times had maybe got up to 10, 11%, but um, that would obviously be quite significant. In reality, it turned out more something like 6%. Um, so there isn't the gender polarization that maybe was expected according to what the polls said. Um, but at the same time, there's still a, to some degree of it. And I think it's interesting that maybe to make uh, a point about uh, a more generalizable point across the West, that we do see a kind of gender polarization happening in many different countries, uh, women tending to vote center left um, and men tending to vote for the right. And I, I mean, one question maybe to put this out there, and maybe this is a bit of a reach, but I wonder whether this doesn't have to do with women tending to be better educated uh, and that therefore this gender gap is in fact a reflection of the fact that uh, liberal and center left parties are becoming the parties of the highly educated and therefore um, tend to have a higher proportion of women voting for them. Any thoughts on that, uh, Alex or Amber? Or indeed anyone else, Philip or George? I mean, I think that's plausible. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure, though, that um, I, I guess I would say I'm not really sure that uh, I ever really thought that the um, that there, there would be a massive gender gap. Um, I think the idea of being like a, a political person has been sort of heightened for women in this past race because so much of um, the kind of culture wars, which have come to sort of substitute a lot of the say more serious or concrete or material politics that Trump ran on the first time, um, those have sort of come to the fore. I mean, you saw um, like a massive sort of, uh, like a slew of um, sort of think pieces about uh, Trump voting women, you saw that constantly. Like, and and you know, it became the evil white mm. women became yeah. the kind of boogeyman the for Karens, the yeah. for the Democrats. Yeah, which is very which was very funny to see because, like, also like white women are, you know, like major machinery behind the Democratic Party, like these middle class, you know, highly educated white women. So. In many ways, there was like this class war that was heightened, this intra-female class war that was sort of going on, which was um, very funny to see since they were sort of mirror images of each other. Uh, and But yeah, I mean, like women sort of became the, the, the dutiful soldiers for their respective parties um, this time around, which was um, strange to see. But it, it kind of, it, I think it coasted off of this sort of this sort of culture war of like what are what's women's role in politics and you know aren't women actually the you know the the agents of white supremacy or are women going to save us from the pussy grabber or are we it it yeah. was the it was a very strange dynamic but basically basically we're happy to debunk this idea that there is a significant gender gap and that that's a main takeaway from this election yeah of we're course to, yeah to yeah so let's move i think we move. also just don't know I think well, we just don't know. Indeed. I think the exit polls are on, are really weak, noisy data, and really? you have to wait for kind of voter files where we actually have better data. And there's also something really weird and undemocratic about the kind of endless chopping of voting democratic uh, demographics that I think 
has to be, they, I just think it has to be handled with care uh, over attributing um, death, you know, the, the significance of certain demographic yeah. things, especially through exit polls. I just think that it's not great data and we just don't know. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think, and I'm going to take something from the data here and again, like, feel free to dismiss it. Um, but I think we can use that as a, a plank to kind of broaden out the discussion. Let's talk about income, I guess, for starters, um, and whether you what you think as a consequence, what uh, kind of how kind of class polarization fell uh, along the Trump Biden divide. Um, all the, the kind of higher earners, uh, 100 to 200k family income said, like, let went a bit more to Trump. Um, the really high earners went to Biden. Um, interestingly, I think the only kind of bit that struck, uh, that stood out to me comparing 2016 to today was that those earning 500 to, uh, excuse me, those earning 50 to 100k uh, family income went to Biden this time, uh, which was a big swing from 2016 when they had previously gone to Trump. Um, that's maybe seems significant. I mean, is that is that a is that something that you think you can uh, kind of hang your hat on? Anything that's a significant figure, and does that chime with your reading of the election of how things have gone? Um, that perhaps that Trump's winning over of sections of the working class uh, maybe didn't happen this time. I'm not sure if it has to do with affections or not. I, I'm also not sure. You know, I also I think I think Alex is right. You shouldn't jump the gun on these things. But I think the actual sort of like um, chaotic, um, the sense of chaos that Trump brought with him was um, not as appealing to the fifty thousand hundred thousander. I'm basing this more largely on like anecdotal stuff um, because of the the. Trump voters, I know. But God, I mean, it might be an anecdote, but considering how bad the, the polls are, I, I couldn't do worse. Um, I, I think that the generalized sense of um, instability over the past four years made him uh, less appealing uh, for at least some people I, I know who voted for him the first time around. I would say that. Alex? Yeah, I think I think that I, I, I don't know, you know, again, I don't know how good this data is. So we do know that one thing Biden tried to do was make a play both for suburban professionals um, and that and uh, white working class voters. I mean, that's that's what it was in their mind, not in our mind, but like that they thought they needed to target and draw out more of those voters and they seem to have succeeded they did incredibly well in really important suburbs like philadelphia atlanta really just you know i mean the victories are in part doing much better in suburbs um with incomes like that um so uh, i actually think the data the better data is not exit polling data but just looking at vote changes in the relevant counties and um Matt Carp has done some really good stuff on this, actually, who already showed that there's been 2000. This strategy was already part of the, the midterm elections, but that it was winning back suburban professionals. And that seems to have been one success of Biden. And he seems to have won a bit more of, um, you know, whites without college education, whatever the hell that demographic is. But 
the 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 reason that I'm hesitant about that, I mean, if you you can see little areas, air, you know, you can the you can compare. 2020 to 2016 by county and see that there were also, especially in the Midwest, shifts among white voters in those counties. But the reason that I'm hesitant until we've got like really good data to, to make a lot of judgments is that it's not that significant because what matters as much or more than who voted is then who leads. And the different demographic segments are not going to tell us a lot about who's going to determine the shape of the party and how it's going to rule. Yeah. Some class fractions that are represented in the Democratic Party have a much greater influence over the day-to-day -day, um, way in which Democratic Party is going to govern. Um, so, for instance, it's still got way more votes from poor people of every race than Trump did, Biden did. But Biden's administration is not therefore going to be more responsive to the interests and needs of those people in part because they're not that politically organized. Yeah. Um, I, while not wanting to bring this back to the primary one, the primary experience I took away from canvassing in the spring was realizing just how unbelievably politically disorganized this country is and therefore why outlets like the media and the chattering classes play such an outsized role is there isn't competing political organization for those who don't have spontaneous control over the discourse, which is the working class. So um, the, the demographics of who did and didn't vote and whether there was a gender change or whatever is, you know, it, it isn't irrelevant, but it doesn't, those voting patterns don't tell us who's going to rule, um, who's going to determine the actual shape of the party and the direction of the party. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Though, on the other hand, I mean, I think there is a question about, you know, why uh, that the, the candidate who won, why did they win? And yeah. we should maybe talk about the issues. And this also relates to, to the campaigning that we maybe we can reflect on. Um, at least according to the to the exit polls, and again, we can dismiss the data, though here I think it seems pretty pretty clear. Uh, those who most cared about the pandemic voted 90% in favor of Biden. Uh, racial inequality, likewise, similar number. Uh, those who most cared about the economy voted for Trump. And I think that's fairly clear cut. Uh, it's so overwhelming, the numbers from the exit polls. I think, no, that probably um, has some meaning to it. And indeed, uh, that would chime at least with what we what we would probably gather just from from kind of following the election. Um, so any comment on that? I mean, how did Trump uh, campaign against the pandemic effectively um, in favor of freedom and I guess by consequence uh, in favor of the economy um, that we ended up with this polarization of pandemic versus economy um, and that Biden stuck over the line. And YMCA, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we, we talked about this. This was the central the central poll of his campaign was for freedom against coronavirus and for, for staying at YMCA. Young men, where did they vote? Um, I'm not sure if they voted. <laughs> God, what a queen. Maybe our first queen president. Yeah, well, I always said the first camp president, but... I, I said this once, and they said no. President. Reagan was the first camp president. Yeah, so Benjamin maybe Moser first said Reagan, so yeah. maybe maybe the first queen. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, he's a bit more of a um, you know Tom of Finland type. Like he he actually goes like Reagan went <laughs> actually he was cowboy. You know, he had the more camp mask yeah, look. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, 
I will say, like, again, this is why I'm not so sure that this is repeatable. I do think that this was sort of the, um, you know, the corona election or rather um, the pandemic more almost existed as a, God, this is going to sound so disgustingly like critical theory based, but the pandemic existed sort of as a physical manifestation of um, an intangible contagious kind of chaos um, that people were very, 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 very sick of. And I think more so um, than we want to let on, they were even before uh, the lockdowns. Um, I think, um, I think there was a lot of, you know, that the response was like, and, and now, and now this, what this fucking weird rolling disease that we have to deal with that we don't understand. Um, I don't know that I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be like patronizing and saying like, you know, voting because your biggest concern was Corona actually means that voting was your biggest concern was, you know, instability, um, chaos, um, new kinds of conflicts that we're not um, prepared to politically engage with. Um, but I think even, even if, even people who said their biggest concern was the virus, I don't know that they actually mean public health policy so much as, as, as a broader a broader sense of stability. And that's why I, I'm not so sure that this this would repeat itself under um, the next, say, presidential mm. election. George, you had a point. Yeah, I, I just just to return to the YMCA point, I think that was the only bit of memorable campaign material produced by by either campaign, um, quite, quite strikingly, in fact. And so it was quite, um, I think, therefore tying um, either, tying either campaign to specific uh, issue salience for voters is is a bit of a red herring to a certain extent because I don't think there was a particularly strong issue focus of either campaign. Biden's basic message was "I'm not Trump," and Trump's message was pretty unclear. And then eventually filled in that void with a with a kind of law and order, and then eventually anti-coronavirus um, dancing message. Yeah, I mean, I think we could probably be fairly confident that the, a lot of the Biden vote was basically anti-Trump. But at the same time, I am curious about what Amber raised about the notion of how to read the concern about the pandemic and that being a motivating factor in voting for Biden, whether that's yeah. about healthcare, whether it's about a sense of wider vulnerability. Um, how do you how do you actually read that? And then by contrast, if Trump is the anti, uh, you know, pandemic candidate, does that mean that he stands for freedom for getting back to work for jobs? Um, in contrast to the lockdowns? I mean, is that actually how it played out? I mean, the funniest yep. thing is, too, that I, I do have to bring up that they don't have different coronavirus plans. Yeah. So saying really. that, like, you're voting based on the pandemic already, that's undermined by the fact that they, mm -hmm. yeah. all they do is argue about how similar their plans are. Like during the debates, they were like, "No, I also said I would do this." That was the entire yeah. thing. And, th and that's, it was and so that's probably strange. Many, in, in everywhere around the world, there's not really been any significant op opposition over different plans. So um, maybe we should move on, actually, because we have a whole list of things which are maybe, I guess, counterintuitive uh, events that need explaining, or at least seemingly counterintuitive ones. So let's start with. Can I just say one thing about the yeah. coronavirus thing just before we go? Because I do think that I had thought that at the beginning that 
coronavirus had just so sapped Trump's authority that it was just clearly a net negative. Uh, and I do think that it was a, a reason for his defeat. But he did manage to turn the tables on it. I think he was the only candidate who actually managed to suggest to people that a vote for him was a vote for no longer living in fear, no longer having to cower at home, live in isolation, and that mm. what he was actually promising yes. people was something more like normal life, right? Yes. You can be out. You don't have to be afraid. You vote for me, I will keep things open. And so the very thing that people hate about him and say he's an authoritarian fascist was actually the kind of the opposite of what he was campaigning on the end. I'm not going to impose more constraints and limits on your freedom of activity and movement, your freedom to see people, your ability to actually return to normal life. I'm going to let you be free again. And I think that's a positive message quite heavily on that. But it's that? a positive message. It was it was actually totally it was very morning in America. It was like, no, yeah. we right. you get to see people, you get yeah. to have a life again, you get to go to work. Yeah. And the Democrats okay. were just screaming, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask. What are you I stupid? Know. What are you trying to kill people? Wear a I mask. Know. They're the worst. They're <laughs> that in sense. They're the worst. Yeah. It basically became it's it's irresponsible to campaign. Yeah. To campaign no, politically. Politics is irresponsible. Yeah, yeah. totally insane. So let's turn quickly to Florida, because that was one where lots of idiots were saying, well, how could they vote for Trump, but also vote for a $15 minimum wage? Alex, maybe, how do you explain that? Um, I mean, there were a couple places where you had sort of weird results like that, and you had even weirder results in places like California. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's a vote for Biden isn't an, a vote, isn't clearly and obviously a vote for, you know, a strong progressive agenda. So it isn't odd to me. That, and, and if you, you know, if you're not already totally signed up and tuned in to the Democrats and their platform and Trump and their platform, what have you had the experience of? Well, does it, Trump does it mean, the CARES Act. But does it mean you know? that it's, well, okay, so I mean, I'd like to hear more about the CARES Act, but does it mean that there is a realignment going on and that Florida is the kind of leading edge of that realignment? I don't think so. I don't think Florida is an indication of realignment. For one thing, there is a very significant vote that swung very heavily for Trump that didn't have, you know, the, the Cuban-American vote played a big role in, um, uh, in uh, making Florida go so heavily for Trump. Uh, and uh, that's it's just not obvious to me that it's any kind of realignment. It's always been a weird feature of Florida. Um, in fact, Florida didn't end up going the way the rest of the election went. Florida ended up voting much more conservatively than Georgia, than North Carolina, than but Wisconsin, that's Michigan, mean, uh, Pennsylvania. That, that, that's what I mean. Like, if people see that there's a political opportunity of, yeah. um, you know, or the Republicans see a political opportunity in the fact that if the, the state they won so heavily is also now um, has voted for a $15 minimum wage, I mean... Does it show? Oh, you mean like, oh, this is a chance for them to get in on the left side of a kind something of like, like that, yeah. True right populism. The the thing about so it's possible. It's possible. I think you know, for instance, Trump's not, not, actually not a very credible candidate for that. But someone like Tucker Carlson would be. Uh, uh, I mean, because he, I think, understands that more clearly and has greater contempt for just bowing, you know, bending over for finance and real estate development. <clears throat> 
you know, in the end, Trump, not unlike, you know, sort of other kinds of right wing figures, um, uh, has, especially in the US, he just really did very little on the ground in actual policy to, to, to engage in much welfare legislation for the working class. There was no real right-wing welfare state or set of welfare policies. The CARES Act was an one-off act of patronage, but pretty different than say advocating for a minimum wage. Tucker Carlson, you know, thinks there should be a minimum wage, but you know, that, that finance should be regulated. I mean, he's got a full picture of what briefly people thought the Bannonite political economy was gonna be, right? But Bannon got ousted very quickly. And I think it's not accidentally mm -hmm. because Trump actually had no interest in the end and actually pursuing with any vigor and consistency, a real realignment and attempt to, um, to incorporate the working class through its political economy, economy with the exception of trade. Um, and he thought he was gonna do it on culture, basically. Whereas yeah. I think that actually th there is a possibility and Tucker Carl someone like Tucker Carlson, I mean, he's sort of a- The, the field is wind, still open for Strasserism. Could yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, there, there is, I think that opportunity is there. I don't, and, and I don't think just Florida doing that is, is the only evidence for it. Sure. I think that opportunity is absolutely there. So let, let's, um, and it's kind of what happens over the next two years will matter a lot if the Democrats get forced to occupy that space or if they refuse to do it. Let's look, let's look at the opposite side of things and go to California and I'll come to Amber uh, on this. Probably one of the most disappointing things on the night was uh, Proposition 22 passing in California, which classifies app-based drivers as contractors and not as employees. Uh, meanwhile, of course, California <coughs> went for Biden quite heavily, as, as would, of course, be expected. Um, that's really disappointing. Is that uh, presaging uh, Silicon Valley dictatorship under Biden? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a big leap. Um I, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever. First of all, very disappointing. Second of all, sort of observing the campaigning behind it. I would be interested to know, and I, I, I'm not sure what information I have on this, but I would be interested to know exactly what people thought they were voting for, getting the, like, giving the $250 million, um, campaign that they put behind it. Um, one of the, th I mean, for that kind of money, they could have just given their um, employees, uh, you know, health care. Um, I mean, the, the, number, it, the, the funds are remarkable spent on, on backing that. I yes. don't have it in front of me, but it's huge amounts of money. It's, it's massive. Um, Still a really good return it, on what they invested. Yeah. It, does, it does seem to me that there is something more rigidly... Um, ideological about the capitalists of Silicon Valley. So for example, um, the big box stores or like Starbucks, they conceded and they were like, look, it's going to be more of a pain in the ass in the long run, not to offer some sort of, you know, um, pay increase or, um, or sh shitty insurance option for people who, you know, work over 35 hours a week or whatever. I mean, I, th I think, I think other large, big money corporations take, you know, they just do a cost benefit analysis and they're, they're just like, well, we'll just give them this because it's, it's a less of a pain in the ass. 
I think Silicon Valley is interesting in that tech companies, and I'm not sure if this has to do with the fact that they self-valuate or what, but um, they would burn their fields before giving a single acre to the peasants. So there is something strange and different about them. And I, I, I don't have, I don't, I can't fully explain it, but it just seems, it's like when Thatcher, um, you know, uh, uh, busted in order to bust up the miners union, you know, she spent a lot of money and increased dependency on foreign coal, which wasn't as good and wasn't as cost effective. It was worth it to pay more to maintain absolute control. It was, it was, um, it was capitalist ideology at the expense of, of capitalist profits. So I don't know, I, I'm going to be trying to look into more of that over the next few weeks and probably months, but the campaign itself by, you know, Uber was just mm. mind blowing. It was huge. They got so, mothers against drunk driving to deliver yeah. flyers to people's houses yeah. because yeah. Uh, someone was like, you know, yeah. this, these, these shit, the, this service say, could have saved my daughter's life. And it's like, bitch, maybe your daughter should have had a bus to ride. It was the most, yeah, there's something, there is something new happening with Silicon Valley. Or if it's such a good service, maybe they should be paid better. You know, like, no, I, I think that actually California is the site of one of the mo- most reactionary tendencies in American politics. Uh, I talked about on previous po- podcast, which is the cult of the entrepreneur. And I think the thing about these guys, especially in tech and also in finance, is that they don't just think that they are earning marginal returns on their productivity or something like that. They think they're super normal men of will and intellect Mm -hmm. and that they deserve everything. And it's the principle of the thing, not the quantity of stuff they keep that matters to them. They are Mm -hmm. just qualitatively different and better. They are innovators. They have extra special insight. And it's why they have such bizarre, weird, cultish personal habits and guru tendencies and shit like that. And so the contempt, it, it's, it, it's like a personal, it's, a, it's why it's not, it's a special corner of capitalist ideology. Because I think a lot of people don't think like sort of Trumpism is different. The car dealership owner, the tax account guy, they don't think that about themselves. Their cultural resentment is different. Their class-specific cultural resentment is different. They hate the well-heeled elite. They also hate the tech entrepreneurs and the financiers and the entertainment industry. That takes us. But that the real takes tyrants are the to, people in tech. So that takes us straight to the other angle, which is the fact of the the states that Trump lost, and he seems to have done more poorly um, in the Rust Belt than um, uh, than people expected. <clears throat> Um, and it yeah. looks like he's set to lose um, Pennsylvania as things stand. So um, this, despite the fact of the steel tariffs and all of that with um, putting steel tariffs and beating up on China. So did protectionism not work? Um, what happened there? It Amber, was tokenistic. Um, tokenistic. Oh, sorry, go. I mean, Amber, if you've got either, a thought on this, either, I have thoughts, but they're not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. And I, I actually think, again, people have... Um, or liberals did, yes, like underestimate the, the degree to which um, so many voters who, you know, voted for Obama uh, actually do care about economic protectionism and don't even really care about like the, the, the broader sort of more nationalist um, affect of the initial Trump campaign. Um, but also I will say that 
if you vote in that way, if you vote on the basis of uh, protectionism, on the basis of retaining unions, jobs, that kind of thing, it means that you have like a very concrete, very material, very anti kind of symbolic or cultural politics um, mm. approach to voting. So you expect fucking results. And he didn't really deliver. I mean, there were a few things that, yeah. that he did do. Yeah. But, um, you know, he didn't do what he said he was going to do. And I think actually that's kind of one of the more encouraging things is that, yeah. you know, even in the sort of whatever barren lands of post-industrialization, they're not voting on cultural politics. They still have a memory of like, no, no, no. We voted for jobs. You didn't yeah. bring jobs. You don't get it this time. Yeah. And good for them. Totally. It's a, a classic contradiction of a, um, a capitalist populist. Like a capitalist populist, like Trump is never going to actually try to discipline, for instance, the car companies and stuff. And when he made a big noises in the Midwest about bringing these, because it wasn't just steel, he made a lot of noises about bringing jobs back and manufacturing and car companies. And then places like GM, they just closed up shop about two years in and he didn't do anything about it. And he didn't care, uh, right? Because he thought he was doing fine, but they, I think they knew, you know, mm -hmm. those jobs just didn't show up. Uh, and so they may still have thought, well, he tried and failed. And so might have still voted for him. I don't know. But it, you know, he didn't make you know, the, the policies, um, the degree to which he pursued protectionism in a way strategically oriented to get jobs in particular places or preserve jobs in particular places in order to entrench that vote and institutionalize that vote uh, was actually really weak. Like I remember thinking that actually it was a really big mistake in the first year that he didn't go for a transportation bill and then put the Midwest to work building roads. Had mm. he done that, it would have been total. I think he would have been immune. He, I mean, the Midwest would have just gone. Bannon was actually right about that. And it's the fact that he really wasn't, so for me, that's the kind of example where he doesn't, he didn't actually have a, way of seeing that through in a consistent way and so even the protectionism was kind of symbolic for him yeah. it was the yeah. peg to concrete results yeah. so Alex, um, just just quickly Alex... for listeners uh if you want to listen if you want to hear more uh, about what alex gurovich was just saying there about the culture of the entrepreneur you should check out episode 57 which is our part of our series the uber mention of capital which uh, deals with these issues uh, it's a good one uh, worth checking out uh, so we should deal with the uh, latino question i'm not saying latinx because only this uh, is what i wanted say to say <laughs> yeah alex alex wants to come on on this question in particular because obviously it's important to his heart yeah so um of course we know that miami is the capital of latin american reaction um but on the other hand you know latinos even in texas um in some of the most latino counties in the country went for trump uh, so what happened there? Obviously, the Democrats can't take for granted the fact that uh, supposedly non-white uh, people that they cast as Latinos uh, can be dependably relied upon to vote for them. Um, so is there something going on? What's the hypothesis here? I think first we can maybe take the Florida case and say, well, of course, uh, conservative you know, white Cubans uh, will vote for the Republicans and continue to do so. Um, and maybe you know, Venezuelans who uh, live in the US maybe also feel like even if they're not anti-communist, they might 
feel that, you know, socialism is disorder and that they don't want that. And maybe Trump was successful in painting that picture that uh, vote for Biden is a vote for, if not socialism, a vote for disorder, a vote for BLM protests, a vote for all that kind of mess. I don't know. That's that's my hypothesis. Um, but it doesn't explain the question of why heavily Latino counties in Texas are now voting for Trump. I mean, do you guys have a, have a theory about I'm, that? I'm going Latinos to scream. I'm going super- to scream. Um, so this one is probably like the biggest, most irritating kind of talking point that I've seen from liberals at this point. I, I can't, I mean, it at this point, it it is obviously, I keep saying at this point, I'm existing on a lot of points right now. Uh, uh, I, it's like acupuncture. I know it's a very like, oh, actually Frankenstein was the name of the science is not the monster point, but Latinos aren't a thing. Yeah. Uh, demographically it makes no sense to talk about them as a category in America or anywhere else. Um, So that's the issue. Brazilians, when they move to the U S they're always shocked that they're treated as Latinos, that they're called Latinos. Like we're not Latinos. What are you talking about? We're we're Brazilian. We're whatever, you know, you might be white and then you think you're white or you might not be, but you're not a Latino. That's, that's always a surprise. It literally makes no sense. I mean, even if you're just talking about like what we mean when we say Latinos in the Midwest, which is Mexicans, um, you are talking about people who may like, you know, if they're if they're going there to do building work or something, they tend to be more social democratic. There's also a lot of sort of um, determinism about religion where people are saying it's like, oh, it's all about abortion. That's absurd too. Like there are there are obviously like Catholic Latinos in America, but abortion is, it, it doesn't hold the same weight. There's also a lot of Latinos in the military. There's law and order Latinos. There's a lot of Latinos who, even if they're one generation away from immigration, are very strong economic protectionists because they of all people know that controlling the supply of labor is very essential to establishing wages. Um, there are, uh, yeah, social democratic Latinos. There's a lot of small business owners. Uh, you know, there's a lot of petty bouge Latinos. Like there are so many different reasons for someone who is quote unquote Latino to vote for Donald Trump or reasons they might vote for Donald Trump or believe that Donald Trump was seeing to their interests. And the only thing you hear from liberals right now is uh, it's because the, the Republicans have agreed to let them be white, which is this insane like race craft. <laughs> it's first of all, it's like very offensive because it's basically like a bunch of white people calling Latinos like race traitors as a broader category or something. Yeah, yeah which is what this um, all basically is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 absurd. And second of all, it's an insane misreading of a, a myriad of different political interests over a an enormous, an enormously diverse group of people um, who have all kinds of different fucking political motives. It's making them sound like they're, they're, they're in some sort of like, uh, they're brokering a deal for whiteness that's idiotic. Also, black men uh, have, yeah. have had increased voting turnout for Trump, and they're not being allowed to be white, whatever the fuck that <laughs> means. So, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I'm glad that Amber's forthrightly dealt with that and, and dismissed uh, a lot of that nonsense. But, of course, the, the real reason that it's a question, not why did 
Latinos not vote for the Democrats or why what motives would they have for voting for the Republicans, but rather that Trump was obviously actively hostile uh, to Latinos or certainly to Mexican immigrants. So I think that is maybe the question more to be answered. But of course, I think if you look around the so world, so are they, a lot they, of Latinos. Exactly, exactly. I think lots of but recent also immigrants. But Trump toned down the immigration. It was a big story. It, it, was, it was a pretty big story. But he stopped campaigning on immigration. It, he they, there was a dramatic decrease relative to 2016 in the uh, in the amount of ads do- dedicated to immigration. They were targeted in much smaller, many fewer markets um, because the lesson that the that the campaign took away from 2018 and the midterm elections was that it was hurting uh, the Republican Party and their chances. And so they eased off it, actually. You um, have to realize what you're doing here, Alex, though. You're 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 white splaining to a Latino, um, like, you know, what they think about American politics. So no, uh, let's... Who, who, how I'm, I'm pointing out that what got people what, the first Alex, I think the Alex only... is Latino. Yeah. Let's I mean, move yeah. on. Let's move on. Let's move on. You have to I can't even look, do a good it, accent. It, um, let's, let, let, let's move on because I mean I had a note here to talk about polling, but I think we should skip it off. Uh, it's good that pollsters get it wrong because they can't pin us down. Uh, long may that continue until polling gets shut down. I don't entirely. think they were that wrong, so, by the way. Well, anyway. it's, it's almost like we, we we predicted that we would talk about it, and then we we, we got that prediction wrong. So <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Um, so we should talk about Biden. But look, wait, can, I, I just want, I do want to say one thing about the Latino thing, which is it's worth remembering that a majority of the Latinos did not vote for Trump. Of course, yeah, they didn't. Yeah, the only reason that shift is significant is it gives the lie to the idea that the central thing about Trump was that he was this racist fascist, because. If he was, how did he, inc- after four years of everybody then learning more about him, why did he increase his vote share with blacks and Latinos? Either they're morons who have no idea what's going on, or maybe they see things a little different from the people who obsess about everything that Trump tweets. Yeah. Friendship ended with people of color, now friends with, I don't know, some other minority group that you want to pick yeah. up and adopt. <laughs> uh, right. So um, talking about Biden, I mean, the way I see it and, you know, jump in and disagree with me or agree or whatever, uh, is that Biden will suffer from a real lack of authority once Trump has left the scene. Because for the Democrats, once they don't have, uh, quote unquote, anti-fascism or Russiagate to hear them, uh, they have nothing. It will expose the void. And so Biden will be kind of very alone there. Do you agree with that characterization and prognosis? That's so funny. That's so sweet. That's so you're so Brazilian right now. Um, <laughs> that the idea of a void of authority, that's so um, power politics. I don't think it, it means as much uh, specifically because the way that the presidency tends to operate, um, particularly when Democrats run it, is that it's just very managerial and technocratic. Yeah, I just oh. don't think, I think that's Sought true, but I don't, it's, I think that the problem is that that, that only worked when they when they were, sufficiently effective at demobilizing society. And when you had a president who exuded competence and managerial authority and Mm. Biden's not going to have either of those things. Mm. I mean, the irony is I think that once Trump is defeated, uh, the very thing that was supposed to explain why you didn't have to do more than just not be that guy is gone. Uh, um, And they'll, the midday, you know, First day in office, be like, okay, he's gone. Now what? Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do for us? You know, and um, 
the social crisis generated by the response to COVID, there might be another winter of lockdowns, is going to deepen that. So the underlying social demands, plus the massive increase in turnout, I think is going to put immense pressure on, on uh, Biden and the Democratic Party to actually do something. Uh, and they're not going to have the authority to do it. The problem for them is that and this is why I think they probably, whether they know or not, are probably desperate for the Senate to stay in Republican hands. It's because they'll have no excuses yeah. for not doing anything. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not that's, entirely that's gonna be sure. The, that's I mean, that's going to be the be... challenge, right? When, when, when the uh, nominal power is in their hands, <clears throat> what's the explanation for not for not achieving any sort of change or not, not enacting any... Yeah. Um, sort of political project and then there will be recourse either to I guess uh, a, a number of different things one could be a media spin that oh look at all these great things that that, that Biden is, is achieving um, and the other could be well you know uh, things haven't gotten any better but at least it's you know that that fascist threat was um, was was stopped I mean I think it's a that's that's going to be the the work of the the Biden administration at least to uh, or its supporters, at least to start with, is turning a, an uninspiring political project into some kind of um, victory or some kind of uh, um, win, because it, it doesn't seem like they uh, there will be the political authority within within the project to actually um, mobilize people behind it. I'm mm. I'm not so sure. I do think I do think Alex is right that it depends on how people react and respond to Corona. I mean, both like political and, and the broader population. Um, that said, I've been going back a lot recently to think about Obama. And I kind of want to reconsider this idea of this, of this, you know, grand and inspiring and, and, and preternaturally charismatic and authoritative politician. And remember the fact that he came after Bush too. And I think that you can actually, you get graded on a curve as a president, um, you know, based mostly on your predecessor. And I remember after, you know, 2008 and the financial crisis, when we were trying to talk about like, this is poorly managed and, um, and uh, you know, we, we have a president that doesn't really care about, you know, reigning in the excesses of capital or, um, or providing even just basic relief to, to people who are suffering after this global financial collapse. The main thing that people would say when I was sort of canvassing or you know, just having basic conversations was, well, he inherited these problems. And I don't know, I just know that people do understand that there is kind of a flywheel effect with presidential um, with presidential politics and, um, you know, they could very easily rationalize away um, a, a very shitty Biden presidency based on the fact that he inherited it. That might be a bit cynical, which tends, tends not to be where my head goes. I tend to think that people are generally rational and hold people accountable. But I also think when you've had just really shitty, negligent, deadbeat political leaders for long enough, you know, you're just so happy when someone is an improvement on the last guy that you are less inclined to criticize him. Mm. 
Yeah, I don't know. Do you, but do you think, I mean, I just, Amber, do you really think Biden can be a managerial president? I mean, the thing about, you know, that managerialism produced, you know, like Jason Bourne movies, you know, it's like competency <laughs> porn, you know, like yeah. people who can like just through just sheer insane, insane combination of abilities manage to figure out how to get someone's, you know, fingerprints, uh, you know, copy their voice, break into high school. Can you imagine? And then, you know, that's the kind of social imaginary people like that who mm-hmm. want that. And then, you you know, you listen to Biden to talk, talk for like two minutes and you think, holy shit. Yeah. And it's not so, like that's Kamala that, Harris era. She's yeah, so, a new so cultural regime. Alex so, and, and, yeah. and Amber as well. I guess the question, there's a question here then. Basically, what is... What is Bidenism? You know, in government, what is it? I have be? no idea. Is the thing? Do we like? Have a, any like well, maybe, maybe, maybe. What would its major strands be? I mean, so would yeah. we expect? Say, are they going to pay back um, the Silicon Valley tech lords for the censorship they've done? Um, how far are they going to allow Uber and Lyft to shape labor policy on you know on a national scale? Are they going to do anything about, say, a minimum wage? How much are they going to um, give to the left of the party, if anything at all? Any SOPs? I mean, any kind, anything green, at all, anything at all. Green be, energy investment, yeah, criminal justice reform. I think it's the first. Like, there were some interesting articles about the cabinet and about it, and it's clear that there it's woke neoliberalism. Like, it's basically the emphasis yeah. is on non-white men. I'm oh, sorry, on non-white non-male figures um that's what the, the cabinet has to look a certain way and to be drawn but be drawn from a very specific part of the party which is they were you know the junior figures in the obama administration and around the obama orbit um and so it's going to be that uh and the 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 and and beyond that sort of um whatever it means to try to eliminate the conflict and polarization from political life. So it's going to be the return of that impossible struggle to eliminate a conflict that the Republicans can endlessly regenerate. So I don't, I, I think that the real thing is that Bidenism isn't going to be a thing. It's not a, there is no Bidenism mm-hmm. because it isn't anything in particular. It's going to be instead a conflict with the left wing of its party. Uh, I think, I think that's going to be, yes, I think it's going to be a lot of, um, I think, Again, this is pure, this is pure, God knows what they're planning in, in their little neoliberal war room. But I, I think what they will probably do is, if I had to guess, roll out a suite of little reforms that they can um, present as like um, dynamic, positive projects. Um, a lot of which will be folks. Like, remember uh, Kamala's like a the youth debt relief plan that was like, oh my God. if you were a first generation college attendee who took out Pell Grants and started a small business in a, in in a minority neighborhood, yeah. you would get partial <laughs> debt relief. I, yes, for three years. And I remember we went for a really long time trying to figure out who that would actually cover. And I was the only person who would have been eligible that I could find because I started a <laughs> podcast in Bed-Stuy. Uh, and he will not be as visible so much as maybe a more in, um, confidence-inspiring team. 
But no, there's the Bidenism is largely going to be empty. Um, the main problems is that like orange man bad and he's gone. And um, yeah. And the whole main thing is to keep morale up. But that's not going to be possible. That's not going to be possible. I mean, the first thing that's going to happen is there's still going to be COVID. Yeah. And I think there's totally wildly unrealistic expectations about from a certain from a segment of Biden voters about like he's going to kind of magically make it go away or something like there's nothing he can yeah. do. Uh, and uh, um, and that's going to be a disappointment to people. He's going to. And I think, you know, Pell Grants for first generation college students opening, you know, uh, new businesses it's, not, it's just such tiddlywinks and there's i think the the degree of expectation will turn out to be far more than can be managed by that kind of stuff i mean maybe i'm wrong but i just don't yeah. i think the pressure is well, going to be in here's hoping especially if they control the senate yeah here's hoping okay so let's start wrapping this up uh over to you phil okay so biden is um um obscure and um empty but I guess the um, given that the blue wave didn't happen, everyone is asking what mm-hmm. next for um, for Trumpism, given that it's evidently not going to go away, or at least there'll be the coalition he's assembled is there now for um, to be seized by somebody else. Um, and would it be fair to say that the GOP is a nationalist party now? So you've indicated now and again, Alex, in some of your responses about the um, potential for a kind of... Um, um, for somebody who could actually kind of implement the Bannonite political economy that Trump has failed to do and to be more kind of systematic and institutional in reshaping American politics were they to win the presidency. Um, so I'd be interested to hear if, I mean, what you both think about the future of Trumpism and the GOP and particularly also the what seems to be that the, the Republicans seem to be backing off of him. And this is they seem to be taking the opportunity to ditch him as um as the votes go against him in these uh, fi- in this in the final days of the count yeah i don't know i mean i think the republican party is going to rule through the least democratic institutions in the us because they're a minority party uh, yeah. the republicans are a minority yeah. party i mean they they got substantially fewer votes um a lot of their control over the legislature is due to sort of various oddities and um, weird features of both state and national level politics. And it's not accidental that it's the Senate, not the House, that they control right now. They've institutionalized themselves in the courts of the Supreme Court. And uh, and they've got the Senate and their future is still only the Electoral College when it yeah. comes to the presidency. But they they have made it pretty clear that they cannot win. They, they still are unable to win the popular vote. So it's not particularly popular party. And I think that um, the reason Trumpism is here to stay in the Republican Party is because they don't have any clear form of popular appeal, yeah. alternative popular appeal. Um, and uh, uh, that's, I think, the real problem for them. Um, uh, so and, and they're, they're in the party. I mean, they're institu- Trumpism is institutionalized in the party. There are a lot of representatives in the House of Representatives that are just total fire-breathing Trumpists. And some of them are far more delusional, I think, than Trump, who I think is often quite cynical and something of a con man salesman about things he says, and always kind of says it, but I didn't mean it, but I did mean it because I didn't mean it. A number of the representatives in the House, they just believe it. There's at least a couple who believe the QAnon conspiracy. Like, it's just totally wild 
on his and it's a significant faction of the party so it doesn't go away with trump away and also trump isn't going away i mean i'm sure that he is going to set up shop as some kind of public figure yeah. who will continue to try to undermine and call into question the integrity of the like that's how he that's how he basically started in on the national scene to begin with which was you know raising yeah. questions about obama yeah. so um the one you, one yeah anyway that, that's that's what you, i say about that yeah what do you think amber um you know honestly like i I don't know. I, I, I do think uh, with what Alex mentioned earlier, I mean, there are there are QAnon candidates that are winning now. And the fact that like you have like those people mixed with like the Tuckers and Bannons, I'm not quite so sure that this is the sort of coalition that can, um, that has quite the um, uh, coherence of say like what the Tea Party did. Um, mm. So I don't know if they have that kind of political potential and that's the sort of thing that people are batting around is this yeah. trumpism going to be a, a next wave of conservative mm. politics i think they're a little bit of a more incongruous uh incongruously assembled bunch of of political interests i'm not sure um i was hoping alex because he's been um uh, probably one of the better predictors of the last however many years with regard to po politics would give me a more clear direction, but he doesn't really seem to know either. So that's kind of, um, I, I think it's very much a wait and see, which I would say though, is a little bit encouraging just merely on the basis that again, for, you know, one of the first times in my political life, it doesn't feel like the fix is totally in. Yeah. Um, and people are flexing, um, sort of some sort of political will, even if it's, you know, in these sort of narrow spaces where they don't necessarily have the influence that obviously the people here believe that they should. Um, I, I gotta say, you know, the future is just not written. I'm not really sure, um, for Trumpism or for, um, any of the energy that's sort of coming off of, um, the Bernie stuff or the dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party, um, the stuff about COVID. It's not merely that Biden again is going to mismanage it. It's that people are going to realize that they're, that the infrastructure and um, the political planning of the United States of America, no matter who ran it, couldn't possibly deal with this problem. Yeah. Like we're way, we're way past that. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, the phrase are going to are going to show um, more obviously as time goes along. I, and I'm not really sure what's going to happen. It's exciting. The future is open. OK, well, that's about as good a place to leave it as any. Thank you very much, uh, Alex and Amber. And thank you, citizen of the Republic of Bunga, for listening. Catch you later. Bye bye. get a chance to discuss uh discuss the 2024 election who's gonna who's gonna win that over the main candidates maybe 2028 you know the election doesn't end the election doesn't have to end we can just keep going just keep going <laughs> <in the election. laughs>
It's going to be, yeah, we all, we all live in election now. Like I said, we're actually all dead. This is purgatory. Figure it out. There was a um, funny thing yeah. was like, hey, only 108 more weeks until the 2024 election. <laughs> <laughs> I said it's going to be, I said it's going to be, um, Don Jr. running on the Republic, Republican ticket uh, against Ivanka uh, on the Democratic ticket. <laughs> That's the future. <laughs>